Okay, so what is the salary of the most famous star in American Pie? $9.99. It is the apple pie purchased that day from a Costco in Long Beach. Actually, they bought two. One was a stunt double. Jason Biggs, the defiler of the pie, was supposed to have a stunt double too. But when the guy took off his shirt, he had an eight-inch scar on his chest. Kind of like the cut you make when you slice a pie. So Biggs got naked, and American Pie shocked everyone when its opening weekend raked in $18 million. That is huge for a movie that had to shop at Costco. But to put it in perspective, Costco sells $18 million worth of pies, just pies, in just the week of Thanksgiving. Which means not only have we all probably had a movie star at our table, we've eaten him too. Hi, I am Amy Nicholson, Chief Film Critic for MTV News, and welcome to Season 2 of Skillset, the podcast where every guest is an expert, and every week they teach you and me a new way to look at the movies. This season is about one thing, high school movies, which means it's actually going to be about dozens of things. What a real-life witch thinks about the craft, what a real-life principal thinks about Ferris Bueller, and what lost Breakfast Club footage you've never seen. We are talking about everything from Tom Cruise's sunglasses to Carrie's prom dress. Like our first guest of the new season, Mean Girls expert Rosalind Wiseman, author of the book Queen Bees and Wannabes, tells us how she would update the movie if Lindsay Lohan was in high school today. Holland Roden and Shelley Hennig, the stars of MTV's Teen Wolf, try to tear apart why the 31-year-old movie still has claws in audiences today. And can't-hardly-wait costume designer Mark Bridges talks about the best and worst of late 90s fashion. You know what that means. Scuba goggles. That's all in this week's episode of Skillset. Mean Girls is one of the best examples of one of my favorite genres of high school movies. Teenage girls being really, really cruel to each other. A lot of us girls out there lived it. Maybe we weren't the super mean Regina George, played by Rachel McAdams, or the super naive Katie Heron, played by Lindsay Lohan. But whether you were on the sidelines or stuck in the middle, the world of Mean Girls felt true. That's because of Rosalind Weissman, an educator who spent years studying girl culture, almost like an anthropologist. She wrote a book about it called Queen Bees and Wannabes, and Tina Fey turned that book into the Mean Girls screenplay. Since then, Rosalind has kept researching teenagers. Let's talk to her about Mean Girls and what's changed in high school since the movie was a hit. So Rosalind, I read the book after I saw the movie, and I was shocked to realize that so much of what I thought was fiction was actually true. That, say, the rule about not being able to wear jeans any day but Friday or wearing a ponytail more than once a week came from a real high school junior you met. Sure. Yes. It was a girl that I worked with a lot. Um, I had hundreds of girls help me write um, the first edition of Queen Bees. And then subsequently, I've always had girls um, talk to me and advise me about what I should put in. So, yep, all of those stories are true. So what do you think when you see a girl dressed up as 
a plastic for Halloween. No, I hate that. I hate that. Oh my gosh. You've asked me like my, <laughs> my, it's like, oh, I hate that. I'll, oh my God. <laughs> like, I remember no. the first time, I remember the first time that I think it was like sixth grade girls I was working with came up to me and told me that that they had seen some girls do that. It was like right after some movie first came out, I think in March or April, maybe May. I can't remember. It was like the spring. And um, I'll never forget that. And, you know, so at first I was completely horrified, like horrified because it's antithetical to everything I'm trying to do. Right. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I work, I work with teenagers. And so I also have to give them grudging respect for like subverting every single thing I do. So, you know, I try and make like the world a better place and I try and help people and I have to give credit. Like, you know, like, yeah, of course you subverted that. Sure. <laughs> there you, yeah. Duh. So, um, so it's, it's, it's simultaneously horrifying. And at the same time, like I get it. So what do you think is the most accurate scene in the movie? <laughs> oh my gosh. Unfortunately, the party scene can be pretty realistic. I mean, I do think that still girls use um, for all sorts of baggage that we put on girls so that we can't allow them to celebrate their sexuality or, you know, feel shamed or sort of conflicted about the way that they show their sexuality. So they have to use excuses like Halloween where they get a pass, right. To be as sexy as they want to be. So whatever you are, you're like the sexy kitten or you're the sexy witch or you're the sexy, I don't even know what. So I want girls to understand why they're doing that. And I want them to be able to come into their own in all different kinds of ways in ways that they can be proud of. So for me, that kind of stuff is really realistic even to this day. It's been a little bit since the original book came out. And in the film, oh, there's forever. so many things. Forever. It's been forever. It's been forever. <laughs> it's been forever in teen world. There are kids in school right now who are being born when the ah, book came out. Yeah, totally. Totally. And in that time, they're dealing with new weapons that the first edition of the book and the movie didn't even have. I mean, right. This is pre-Facebook even. Right. So you've just re you've updated the book yourself, which means if you were updating Mean Girls, what would you put in that now? Yeah. So like every five years, I have to update the book because things change. Like there are some things that stay the same. Girls, you know, friendships are really important to them. Jealousy, betrayals, comparing yourself constantly, all that sex stuff and sexuality I've been talking about. Like that stuff is, you know the way things are. Um, but the way in which we communicate obviously has changed. So if I was, you know, if we were redoing Mean Girls, then it would have to be about those things. And it would have to be about, and in all seriousness, the thing that I think is really more difficult for girls now is that I think that if girls are feeling super anxious and like crazy, I think there are really good reasons for it. And I think it's because like you, you know, constantly trying to get as many likes on Instagram or the thing that I, that I talk about in this version of Queen Bees is that you've got this like in, imaginary audience that you're constantly trying to please. And girls have had that for a while, but it's just so much more extreme now because you're, when you post, you're posting, especially on Instagram, like what is it that you want to show you, the public face, you know, your public face of, uh, to the world. And then of course, it's like you get constant judgment on that. And so I really worry about what Instagram does to girls about like, well, who are they? What's their identity? What are they proud of? Why are they so focused on trying to please people that are invisible to them? Like that is crazy making. So, and how are you supposed to, you know, come into yourself and your personality and what you want, what you don't want, if you're so focused on everybody else. 
that's that's not that's just to me is unacceptable um, for girls and by the way for boys too. So that's that's one thing. Of course, I'm you know we'd be talking about sexting. Like I don't know. I'm guessing you know somebody breaks a girl breaks up with her boyfriend and then you know within 24 hours that guy gets 10 sort of naked pics or bra pics of girls saying hey I'm available. That's not unusual for the kids that I work with today. So, so you that, mean Lindsay Lohan would be texting pictures of her boobs to people? Well, yeah, <laughs> in the movie. Wow, it's been a long time <laughs> since I was a girl. No, seriously, like, you know, if, it would be like, you know, they break up, whatever couple breaks up, and then immediately if the guy, you know, girls think the guy is hot, some girls are going to send pics to him saying like, hey, I'm available. Do you want to hook up? This just changes everything. But, but so wait, one thing I'm really curious about is that it feels like the conversation about bullying has really changed in the last 10 years, that lately we're in a culture where people aren't afraid to say that they're victims of bullying. I mean, even Donald Trump is eager to claim he's a victim of bullying. What's going on? Well, he's ridiculous. I mean, that's that's a completely it's he doesn't know what the definition of bullying is by using that term. Young people don't want to hear the word bullying for the most part, because the way in which it's taught in schools is sort of like what was made fun of in Mean Girls. Like, you know, it's super cheesy and, you know, you do trust falls and some girl says something completely fake and stupid. Like, you know, I can't help with it that everybody likes me because I'm popular and beautiful and all that kind of stuff. Um, but so bullying, Wait, are you saying you don't do trust falls? I do not do trust falls. I've never done trust falls. I am completely do not do trust falls. I do not. <laughs> I was no so mad falls. when I saw that in the movie. I was like, that is not me. I do not do that. Cause there are some things that she did do that I do. Um, you know, the look around thing, the hands up. I don't really do that anymore, frankly, because after Mean Girls came out, they, you know, kids would laugh at, you know, they would laugh in a good way. They wouldn't make fun of me. They'd just be like, oh, you're the Mean Girls person. I'd be like, okay, I can't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> for the most part, young people get really stupid bullying assemblies and presentations or like adults think that they're going to put some poster on a wall saying like no bullying or give you a button. And it like, that's going to stop it. And the other part is, is that we never, ever, adults never, ever talk about how adults treat kids. And we don't talk about the fact that, and it's true, that in so many schools in this country, there is at least one adult who is a nightmare to the kids. It's like arbitrarily, like having like control battles with them and being a bully. And then the other part is, is there could be teachers who hate what that other person's doing, but they can't stand up to them. And then we say to the kids, well, if you're being bullied, go talk to an adult. But adults have very little credibility on this issue. It's really like I think that young people just are dealing with a lot of hypocrisy a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but think that Hollywood is so much like a high school itself when you think about how mean the industry turned to Lindsay Lohan in the years after Mean Girls came out. Oh, yeah, for sure. And also, yeah, it is. And so is every magazine that says who wore it better. So with everything you've seen and with all the girls that you've seen grow up, where do you think the ladies of Mean Girls are today if there was a sequel? That where would those women be today? I think Regina George, if she could drop her um, focus on getting revenge on people. And this is true for like all girls and women that are in this situation who have this kind of pot, like strong charisma, leadership qualities. Um, if they can drop the revenge part, then they actually can turn into genuinely cool, awesome women who can do amazing things in the world. But they have to take stock of what they're doing and they have to take stock of the fact that their friends aren't their friends. They just are people that are afraid of them and want to be connected to them for the stuff that they, stuff that they get. Um, and I think that 
like the Katie character, hopefully would continue down that path. The Gretchen Wieners of the world, really, it's like that's sometimes to me like the hardest because they get so they're so focused on pleasing the person in front of them that they can't they lose themselves in the process and they don't have the thing inside of themselves to say, hey, what, why am I doing this? Like, and I see that a lot with adults. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us today. This has been really interesting. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for talking to me. That was Rosalind Weissman, author of Queen Bees and Wannabes. And hey, I hope all of you out there wear pink on whatever day you please. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. That screech you hear was Lydia Martin, a teenage banshee on the MTV show Teen Wolf, which just finished shooting its sixth and final season. Lydia is played by actress Holland Roden, who stars alongside actress Shelley Hennig, who plays a were-coyote named Malia. If you haven't caught up on the show yet, it has some things in common with the 1985 Michael J. Fox comedy. Our were-hero is still named Scott McCall, his best friend is still named Styles. And there is a lot of howling, but now today, from everyone. Let's ask Holland and Shelley why this supernatural high school story still connects with a new generation. All right, so I am here with Holland Rodent, who plays Lydia. Say hi. Hi. Hello. And also, Shelley Hennig, who plays Malia. Hello. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) So guys, I have a lot I want to ask you about Teen Wolf, the movie, the show, and high school movies with crazy supernatural elements but the first thing i want to ask is a little superficial like can we be honest 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 the mtv shows teen wolf your scott the werewolf is a little bit sexier than michael j fox's werewolf i think we can all concur on that (laughs) tyler has grown into an even more you know sexier person just because of age and wisdom And we've gotten to see Tyler play this role longer than you did Michael J. Fox. So maybe that's why he had a leg up. I don't know. He also doesn't – he grows a very little amount of hair for a werewolf. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if uh, Michael J. Fox had more hair at that time, that age. Probably. I think I think Tyler struck out um, with the lucky card to have a lot of hair on his head and no hair on his body. Right. (laughs) What is it about wolves that people find sexy? Because we see a lot of sexy werewolves. I couldn't tell you. I I have only been in love with two. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I guess is it the hair? Is it like oh he's like hairy? Hairy men are sexy. I don't know. I prefer the nerdy-ish types in real life. So as far as the werewolf appeal. I would only have to assume it's it's because it's supernatural. Or because they're strong and, you know, they – and I mean, especially Scott. He's an alpha. You like typically like a man to stand up for you and and werewolves do that. I feel like it's a hybrid between your pet and your boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, now I'm imagining a world where once a month your boyfriend turns into a chihuahua. Or a chia pet. To each their own. To each their own. (laughs) So Teen Wolf, the movie, is now 31 years old. What is it about this idea that people still connect with today? What I find 
to be true is, you know, I mean, we met some fans today and a, and a lot of them, they they feel like the underdogs in their lives. And I think Scott, Scott from Teen Wolf is that guy. He's he's awkward because he's dealing with the fact that he's a werewolf. He's different. And I, I, I think there's so many characters on the show that are relatable. And what I find is that I think I can speak for all of us that people feel like they have a home to go to when they turn on Teen Wolf because they feel like these characters, although supernatural, are still going through the same awkward and uncomfortable phases you know, of their lives that, that they're going through as well. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Davis has always said that, and I, I agree with him, that it's this uh, analogy for puberty, the supernatural. It's like Michelle was saying, it's the underdog that feels different, but in that same space of feeling different feels special. And that's, you're basically describing every supernatural plot uh, under the sun. And so I, I think it's a classic story. It's, it's your classic Dracula story. It doesn't go out of style. And it's positive because it's like, okay, well, if I'm unique, which we all are because no one's the same, then what makes me special? And Or is that unique, quirky thing about me, is that what makes me special? So instead of hating it, we love it. Oh, my God. Here we are. Therapy 101 <laughs> for <laughs> supernatural. But that's why um, we watch werewolf shows instead of going to therapy. <laughs> exactly. So we're, we're cheaper than – well, I mean, depending on your more cable entertaining, subscription. Depending uh, on the sessions that I guess you can have in therapy. <laughs> depending on the therapist. <laughs> One of the interesting twists of the original Teen Wolf is that when Scott reveals himself to be a wolf like during a basketball game, he finds out that his classmates are more accepting of him being different than he would have thought they would, that he didn't have to hide it. But here in this Teen Wolf, you know, this Scott is still keeping it kind of a secret. But it's interesting because we're in a moment where we talk a lot more about tolerance and about being accepting. Well, I mean, that's just because the show wouldn't be a show. Like, it would end. You know, once that's revealed, the show's – I mean, I guess technically you could keep going, but I don't think that is the show. So I think that was just for, like, writing purposes. Well, he's also a a vigilante of some sort where he is killing people, but he's killing the the correct people. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think he keeps it a secret because – versus the – Milo J. Fox one because he's having to to run the town crime with uh, Stilinski and people can't know how they're solving their crime because yeah. that would hurt the pack. Yeah. Has high school changed in this generation between Teen Wolf stories? Yeah. I mean, in real life, I think there's – I think the show does a good job of projecting what high school is like. I think people are more open with their sexuality. They're, I think more people are out of the closet. I understand that many are still in the closet and it's a tough thing. But I think I think it's like actually cooler to tell people this is what's up with me. And as long as you're not hurting somebody else, you know, good on you. I think I do think it's a lot of it's 2016. I do think the new ge- the new generation is a new generation like and a lot of the you know, their parents or their grandparents are still obviously stuck in the times that they, you know, were raised. But I I do think there's like a new flux of some people who are cool with being who they are. And I think that's pretty dope. I think Jeff has always said he tries to make every issue a non-issue. Yes. And I I agree with his method. 
Yeah, and that's what I mean meant by talking about that is Teen Teen Wolf um, does the same thing. If there's a gay relationship, it's a gay relationship. There, it's there, you don't talk about why or how. It's just it's it is what it is. Um, it's normal, and I hope that makes people feel really good. So I want to ask each of you, what is your favorite high school movie? John Hughes has my heart, along with everybody else in the world. I think he just nailed that formula, where it doesn't—it's not even indicative to the '80s per se. We just associate it associate it with the '80s because that was the time he was, you know, making his huge, huge hits. But um, yeah, I, I like Sixteen Candles. I like Breakfast Club. I am a huge Home Alone fan, so I just love John Hughes. Oh yes, Home Alone. Absolutely. <laughs> That's not a high school movie, but oh but, right, but. He, but but John Hughes was behind that. Coming and, of age, and yeah, I uh, I love I love him. I, I'm a huge John Hughes is my high school music movie. <laughs> Just him. Well, Holland and Shelley, thank you so much for joining us here at MTV to talk about Teen Wolf. And you guys, best of luck with your final season, season six. Thank you so much. Thank this was you. Fun. Appreciate it. That was Holland Roden and Shelley Hennig, stars of MTV's Teen Wolf. Their sixth and final season starts next month on November 15th. That is one moon cycle away. Keep your eyes on the sky. Okay. I want you to picture Ethan Embry in Can't Hardly Wait. His character, Preston Myers, is wearing an open purple-colored chain-link pattern shirt over a yellow and white baseball shirt tucked in tucked in to baggy khaki pants with a dark brown belt. And this guy, this guy is our romantic hero. But hey, it was 1998. That was a low point for fashion. Or was it? When you look around the world of Can't Hardly Wait, you could also argue that the turn of the millennium was an exciting time for fashion. Everyone looks insane, but everyone looks unique. Whatever was happening then, it definitely was not normcore. So let's rewind back to late 90s style and talk to Can't Hardly Wait costume designer Mark Bridges, the man behind the madness. Can't Hardly Wait is a strong contender for the ultimate party movie because in one house, you've got nerds, jocks, rebels, princesses, perpsers, you've got annoying girls, you've got rockabillies, goth kids, exchange students. I mean, where do you start dressing all of these different people? Well, it's funny that you should point that aspect of the story out. And so that's where I started with trying to niche out uh, or, I guess, carve out icons for each of them so that it's really clear visually who they are in the story. Uh, and the way that the script was written, I didn't have a lot of information other than their lines. You know, they were sort of like gossipy girl one, gossipy girl two, hippie girl, beer drinker number one. So, you know, what I did was just have the actors come in, look at them, take their measurements, and then the day that they worked... We, I actually dressed them and decided what they should, what icon they should be in the story. Whoa! So you actually had a hand in shaping their identity. Absolutely, absolutely, and they were all 
very, you know, fresh, eager performers. So they took my advice and we worked together. You know, I always had options or we talked about how the approach might be. So they weren't completely surprised when they came in. But, you know, I think, you know, there's choices behind like the hostess of the party, you know, is a bit overdone. Like she's got some unrealistic thought of what this party is going to be like. So she's very dressed up like an adult, you know, which is hilarious. And then, you know, there are comedy aspects to choices like for Kenny and his crew. And, you know, it's just you try to make it as timeless as possible. And I think for something that we worked on 19 years ago, it holds up pretty well, actually, as far as the style. So where did you shop? You know, all over, really. I mean, a lot of it, this was sort of Melrose Avenue's heyday. So I do remember quite a bit of acquiring there, getting things. There's a store called Wasteland on Melrose Avenue that had a lot of used clothing, you know, that so it has a real feel. That was the heyday, you know, of Melrose Avenue, which has kind of changed its complexion a little bit uh, as far as what's there anymore. You're getting me thinking about how this was a time when we were transitioning from one type of style to a bunch of different styles. Your grunge was yeah. dying and everything else was like sprouting up all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and then things were used to express different characters, like uh, Lauren Ambrose's character, you know, weighs heavily in on vintage clothes. So you can get the idea that that's what she does on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, she's wearing a 70s leather trench coat and some 40s men's pants and like some 40s shoes. So it's kind of an eclectic look that, you know, separates her from the rest of the female characters and you know everyone has their own sort of look yeah let's start really talking specifically about those looks i want to start with preston played by ethan embry who is of course our leading man in the film and usually when you think leading man people kind of dress a leading man as cool as little generic but ethan embry's costumes in can't hardly wait are so interesting he's a little weird like at the party scene he's wearing white and purple and yellow and khaki and black he's got all these layers on he's got that bright red jacket later on oh, he's, yeah. he's an interesting mm-hmm. kid he's not just a generic hero oh yeah thank you yeah and we were trying to to do that i know that i had that i wanted to do a layered look that is a real vintage shirt and that was kind of a weird knit. I think I overdyed it. The the yellow football jersey, I had a little logo silk screened onto it. It was just at the time when you could see that cargo pants were coming in. Those were real ones from like World War Two or something. And of course, last, you know, ten, 10 years after that, for the next 10 years, all we were seeing were cargo pants. And so it was just, they were, it was kind of right before they hit. And um, so, you know, he's a guy who wants to go and and learn from Kurt Vonnegut. He's definitely someone who's listening to his own drummer. And, you know, I think at the time, the directors thought that he might be too groovy guy. But I, I actually feel like that's part of why it stayed recognizable and timeless over all these years. You know, it's still something that someone could throw on today, I feel, and I wouldn't look at them twice. You know, I'd think, oh, cool shirt, you know. 
What about Jennifer Love Hewitt as Amanda? Because she's the heroine, but she might be the most simple, almost boring dresser in the film. Yeah, and you know, that was more of a choice of uh, doing a pretty color, and because she's very petite, you know, I, she gets could get overwhelmed quite easily with, you know, uh, a lot of sleeves or a lot of details and things. So let's make it attractive and well-fitting and a color that would play up her coloring. And she kind of stands out because it's so simple. You know, everyone else is either colorful or sparkly or leathery or bright pink. And so she becomes sort of softer. I was very happy to see that in some of the scenes where there's a ton of kids in frame, you can pick out Jennifer very easily because she doesn't, she is different than the group or you can pick out Ethan very easily because he is in the white you know, and that's part of my job, too, is, is making you look where we want you to look, you know, so. So the white draws you to his face. I mean, although I'm sure yeah. I'm sure the person you get asked about the most is Seth Green as Kenny and those scuba glasses. There's a line where Lauren Ambrose's character says, quote, his wardrobe alone leaves him open for public mockery. Yes, exactly. So that was what, you know, what is that? And with someone like Seth and that performance, you know, I don't, I think no holds barred, but at the moment when we were researching that show, there are, uh, that in club kids, or it was a moment in time when those kind of goggles were in vogue and you know do you, and it, it, the only other person that I see who's ever used them is Ollie G and if you think his outfit kind of has those goggles up on his head too sometimes where he wears uh, eyewear like that but and it's and that's kind of the same character too kind of a put on persona but I do remember it was a, mo- a moment in time when that was kind of happening in the club scene so what was your favorite outfit? You know, it's really, really funny because each one of them has a story on how we got there. I was very pleased with Kenny, actually. I thought, oh, and Kenny's sidekicks. The guy with the padlock around his neck? Come on, padlock around his neck. Amazing. I forgot about all that stuff, but it's it's amusing in frame. And I have a few favorites. I thought that the, the actual hostess of the party i thought her her downfall was slow and sure from being all perky and all done up and then at the end she's just a wreck just like her house all right so last question i want to get your thoughts on preston myers's yearbook quote quote beware of all enterprises that require new clothes well i don't know whose quote that is but i definitely do not uh, believe that. I actually go towards the light and go towards and look forward to getting new clothes. So th- I I don't believe in that at all. You're going to tell Thoreau he's wrong. Oh, it's the Thoreau quote? Yeah. it's it is, Of course he'd have that attitude. The guy's always out in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a city boy who likes a new outfit. Well, thank you, Mark, for joining us today on Skillset. Thank you. My pleasure. That was Can't Hardly Wait costume designer Mark Bridges. If you want to keep appreciating his awesome range, 
He is the clothing guru behind newer movies like The Fighter, The Master, The Artist, Silver Linings Playbook, Inherent Vice, and Fifty Shades of Grey. I am so glad he could join us for this week's episode of Skillset. And I am so glad you could join us too. Our second season is now officially underway. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Amy Nicholson, and if there's a movie question you want answered, tweet me at the Amy Nicholson. And tune in again next week for a new batch of experts, including the super cerebral connection between Final Destination and Oedipus, and hopefully a new, new way to look at the movies. Remember to subscribe to Skillset on iTunes or your favorite place to catch podcasts. And if you feel like you learned something today, give us a rating. See you next week. This episode of Skillset was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at MTV Podcasts, and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite shows.